Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunstreet. Dunstreet is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in community organizing. We work with nonprofit and community-based organizations, trade unions, progressive businesses, and social democratic parties across the globe to develop campaign strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building, and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunstreet will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action, and organize communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunstreet, hit us up at dunstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also proudly brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you an enthusiastic client-focused lawyer? Morris Blackburn Lawyers are hiring a lawyer, associate or senior associate with experience in personal injuries to join their team in Queens in Queensland in Townsville, Queensland. Uh, they offer a safe, supportive and collaborative environment backed by inclusive leaders and progressive policies. You'll manage your own file load with support and if you're ready to join them on this journey to extend access to justice to more Australians, then you should apply right now. Go to morrisblackburn.com.au forward slash careers. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic, your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaigns and the issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. And on today's episode, we're going to speak to Kate Brennan, who is the director of the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney, and she's got tons of experience in leading Christian organisations and serves on the board of World Vision. And Kate and I are going to have a chat about the relationship between faith-based organisations, people of faith, and politics, in particular the Labor Party. And it's a topic that I've been wanting to talk to Kate about for a while now, but we've just never been able to um, uh, organise the time to get on the uh, on the blower and have a bit of a yak. So we did today, uh, and I'm uh, I'm looking forward to, to uh, today's conversation with Kate. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use, and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify when you're done listening to today's episode, or leave us a review on uh, Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And for all the updates, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Okay, let's get to today's episode. Okay, we're taping this one on a Thursday morning in uh, Melbourne and on the lands of the Wurundjeri people. Uh, And joining me uh, from uh, Sydney is the director for the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney, and she's got... Heaps of experience in leading uh, Christian organisations and serves on the board on the board of World Vision. Uh, Kate Brennan, welcome to Socially Democratic. Thanks so much, Stephen. Great to be with well, you. Look, I've wanted to get you on the show for ages, um, and I know I do say that sometimes with guests. Maybe it sort of is speaks to um, my poor planning more than anything. But I, I wanted to get you on at the time around Easter, but then we had an election on, and that kind of consumed uh, everything that was happening at that point in time um, because I wanted to to, uh, talk to you about uh, faith and faith-based organisations and people of faith in politics Uh, and it's a subject matter that I've wanted to sort of broach for a number of years. I first saw you when you spoke at uh, an event that was organised by the Chifley Institute, I think it was, in uh, pre-pandemic times at a a conference that uh, was organised in Sydney. Um, and it, seeing you speak at that event 
uh, was like, I need to get you on the show. I can't believe it was taking that long. That was like 2019 maybe? It was 2019, yeah, because eight months pregnant at the time. So it's memorable for me. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, but anyway, good things come to those who wait. So uh, what I wanted to uh, – let's just jump straight into it. Um, I, I feel like in my own journey as a person who's a, you know, a person of, uh, of faith – um, practice, practicing Catholic, but I'll, I'll, if I can borrow the term from Stephen Colbert, um, I'm a practicing Catholic and I need to keep on practicing because I'm really bad at it, um, <laughs> that there are assumptions made about people of faith and their voting intentions and the relationship between particularly Labor, the Labor Party and people of faith. Um, and it got me thinking about, you know, does does Labor have a problem with religion and, and vice versa? Does the church or broadly faith-based organisations have a problem with politics. And I want to dive into that. But before we do, um, something happened to me an, a couple of years ago when I was working at head office. Uh, someone said to me, someone, you know, fairly high ranking in, in the organisation said, oh, they won't vote for us, they're Catholic. And I was like, what? Um, which really, you know, I just almost fell to the floor when I heard that. Um, you know, when I think about my tribe, um, you know, the you know the Irish Catholic diaspora built the union movement and built the Labor Party, um, and Anthony Albanese is on the record as saying that he grew up with three faiths: the Rabbitohs, Catholicism, and the Labor Party. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of us can subscribe to that. Maybe not the Rabbitohs bit. I would su- substitute that with the Celtic Football Club. But you know I, we all get the point, right? Um, how do we get to this point that mm. we're having people who? Um, actually, one question you can ask is how do we get to the point where someone inside the Labor Party can't even recognise their own voting base? But, you know, that's for them to try and work <laughs> out. Um, how do we get to the point that uh, we are now making assumptions that people of faith aren't, aren't Labor people? Mm. I think it's such an important question to ask and I had a really similar experience as the CEO of an Anglican Women's Foundation in Sydney. I was at an event and there were many such instances like this, but with... um someone who was a former very senior uh, coalition minister and I mentioned I'd been in Canberra as a staffer and at the time, you know, uh, Labor was in opposition. They said, oh, so um, which minister's office did you work in? And that was the crux of it, that there was just this assumption that if you're a Christian um, and in my case a Protestant that you would just be uh, a Liberal Party staffer and this is such a problem it's it's not good for any political party it's definitely not good for the church or any religious group for these types of assumptions to be made and so I think you know some of this comes down to um, guess what something Luke Bretherton in the UK would call co-option of some religions and some denominations in politics so that there's just um, you know a kind of seamless identity built around them and then some of it is about mistransmission of history so I think in the Labor Party um, stopping telling ourselves the stories that are actually quite foundational about the ethos of the party the ethic of the party the significance of various traditions like Catholic social teaching um, for bringing together what would otherwise be a bunch of quite disparate ideas but make us unique um, in kind of the parties and the left around the world and so um, some of the traditions have been lost and um, that disconnection has been furthered as Labor has kind of gotten further away from communities. So these things are interrelated. And that tradition is interesting because I, I, even if I can extend it, I mean, you just made a, a reference to some of those traditions within the Christian faith. 
um, both, you know, Catholic and, and Protestant. Um, but even like just doing a quick research um, before the episode, I, I was reminded when I was a young um, campaigner working for, for Michael Danby um, in, uh, in Melbourne Port, the whole Melbourne Port's now McNamara, um, I went to a meeting uh, of the Jewish Labour Bund um, which was right. established in 1928 in Melbourne, you know, uh, a strong Labor uh, Jewish union um, and with a youth wing um, that has done so much to set up Jewish organisations here in Melbourne um, that does a lot of community organising and, and it is overtly left wing, it's overtly Jewish, it's overtly uh, Yiddish in its traditions um, and I'm sure certainly for newer migrants of the, of the Islamic faith as well, um, we see connections between those faith traditions and the Labor Party. The Labor Party is a is a is an avenue for people to um, I don't want to say they want to assimilate, but find their it's kind of like finding their Google Maps to get around town, <laughs> right? It helps them. It helps them, you know, move into new newer networks and circles. It's such a critical role, the role that politics plays. Um, but w- when did this start to happen? When have we got to a point where we we're ignoring this connection that existed between uh, the faith-based traditions and the Labor Party. Well, when you speak about, you know, that great form of organising in Victoria, it makes us think about there has been such a long tradition of Labor embracing diversity, um, being okay with plurality. And so I think this problem is fairly recent. Um, <clears throat> and some of it, I think, is because we've run out of space to differentiate ourselves from the coalition. Sometimes we're more alike than we would have wanted and so we've gotten pushed into a space that is not good for us um not good for the communities that we want to work with and so i think it is a fairly recent thing you could point to other trends that kind of go alongside it like um there are a number of people within the parliamentary labor party who had uh significant you know experience within their own family of you know parents being methodist ministers or you know um parents being significantly involved in local faith communities and so what we've seen is those people have also exited parliament just they've aged out in various ways and so there's been a bit of a I think abrupt shift and we're starting to say see in this new parliament people wonderfully with um, diverse faith connections but there was a bit of a glitch there I think and that was reflected in some missteps in terms of election campaigns in the previous election um, just because there's that loss of you could call it cultural competency to know how to connect to these communities and an underappreciation of the fact that there's a significant proportion of the Australian population who identify with the faith and that's even more the case in particular electorates, um, places like Western Sydney and we can name others, um, and just a significant ongoing group who, you know, even just turn up to church each month. More people in Australia go to church each month than go to all the football codes put together in all the games in the entire football season. Um, that's phenomenal and it's massively underappreciated. Is it uh, – I don't want to – I'm conscious here not to get on my whole house because I, I wind up my partner all the time about the secular left uh, and I don't want to do that. But and I think it's great that in the you know you know for from the sixties seventies onwards that there was a new new injection of people into the Labor Party that I guess we brought a secular tradition into the party which is good for diversity, but with that, um, is it that we began to not in the seventies and eighties but certainly now what we're seeing is that a lot of the candidates that we're pre-selecting are people that are not from faith based traditions or faith is an important part of their 
foundation and we see that mostly amongst white middle class uh, Christians. Uh, that's where the numbers have dropped off the most in the, you know in terms of people who are practicing their faith, um, it, particularly white middle class elites. Uh, and I'm not using that in a pejorative term. Um, so therefore, those are the people that we're pre-selecting, and they're the people who actually don't have any connection with their faith. But you've just mentioned before that now we're bringing in you know the the parliament's becoming a lot more diverse looking. Um, those people have got connections into their into their faith, whether it be the, the Islamic faith or or Judaism or Christianity or whatever it may whatever it may be. Um, I, I, there are exceptions to the rule. I did want to point out this. And I want to name check someone actually who actually does listen to the podcast a lot. Pauline Richards is a state member in um, in um, uh, in Victoria, in in the outer suburbs, outer southeastern suburbs, uh, is very connected in, in with her um, her own personal faith. I don't, I don't want to speak on behalf of Pauline, but I know that she does a lot of work um, with you know, the churches down in her neck of the woods, but not in a transactional way, but in a transformational and an important way. But that the, she's, I feel like she's a rarity. Um, is that because the people we were pre-selecting just weren't connected to to some kind of faith-based organisation? Yeah, I think both of those things are really important um, and true. So that there's been that issue in pre-selection um, and it has privileged what you could call kind of cosmopolitan elite who are, uh, not representing um, the full breadth and diversity that you could be in Parliament. Um, and the second thing is that there are many, many people we can think of who do bring the, uh, your important faith into their work and work very hard for those who don't themselves have a faith but work very hard to make the connections with communities. And, you know, um, we could name a number of those and there's been a really good um, new effort on that. So... I think one of the things that you can consider there to add another dimension is just, um, you know, <clears throat> the further diversification that could happen is meant um, is needed because there's been overprivileging of people who um, have represented kind of uh, cosmopolitan interests of the party. And so it's connected, the, the lack of representation is connected, I think, with the kind of loss of tradition that values workers and that's something that... Um, we've seen and has started to be righted again. There was a great book that came out years ago around the time of the Bush administration, the second Bush, uh, w, George W. Bush uh, administration, when Karl Rove and the Republicans were really starting to move into certain Christian groups in the United States. And the book was called uh, Jesus Rode a Donkey, uh, making the argument that there is, let's not forget, there is a connection between the left um, and Christ, in, in particular Christianity, and obviously on the front cover, it had um, Jesus Christ sitting on, 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 on the democratic ass, the democratic uh, donkey. Um, and I think that, I mean, have we lost sight of, the, of that as well? Are, are we making assumptions? Is, when I say we, I mean the Labor Party here. Are we making assumptions of faith-based people that they don't uh, align with our Labor values, that we, when we think about people of faith, we think of... Um, you know, social issues that don't align with ours, like on gender, on LGBT rights, um, on a whole host of things. But I guess this, the argument of this book was, no, no, the core foundations of both the centre-left and Christianity are um, there is a, there is a, there's a moral connection there. Did you want to talk more about that and your thoughts on that? Yeah, and I think you're absolutely right And picking that very striking image of Jesus on the donkey speaks to what is central to the Christian tradition of solidarity with people and so that's one of the issues is with the kind of rise of identity politics there hasn't been 
um, by Labor, you know, a continued critical engagement with politics of solidarity. And so um, that has meant that um, we've kind of broken up various segments of issues um, and failed to show that um, for people of faith that they don't need to make a choice ultimately between their God and labour. Um, and on the side of faith communities, we've seen, you know, ascendant within, say, the, the Christian churches here in Australia, a real focus on uh, single issues, which is unhelpful too and is unrepresentative of, you know, a, a biblical tradition um, that has such a deep, you know, um, deep wells on on issues of justice and connection of that with a picture of God's work in the world. And so it's meant that uh, Christian churches have engaged in, in quite facile ways, often in, in public life, and um, have become incredibly defensive and even started to uh, engage in a way that goes beyond being defensive and starts to become kind of exilic in mindset, the idea that we kind of need to get on the equivalent of an arc and just survive through mm-hmm. modern politics, salvaging what we can for the future. So, um, you know, it's a relationship there and it, it's it's become overly focused on issues that um, are, not, are not representative of either political traditions of labour or faith traditions and um, end up being quite destructive. It's funny, I often point out to some people that, you know, I, I can make the argument that the very first, the most effective and first community organiser was Jesus Christ himself, uh, in which he had a, you know, a core leadership team of 12 blokes uh, that went out there and then found their own leadership teams of interdependent teams and next minute 3.6 billion people subscribed to the Christian faith. It was quite a successful organising model and, you know, maybe it was, some of us can sort of base off of that. And keep, keeping with the organising model, Morris Glassman obviously is a fairly famous community organiser and, and academic um, who has talked a lot about blue labour and about engaging with communities, in particular faith-based communities. Um, what can labour do in that space, do you think, to start to reach out to some of these faith-based communities and build meaningful transformational relationships? Mm. I think so much can be done. There's, um, and there are so many great examples from community organising overseas and here in Australia, so thinking of, of organisations um, in the US, in the UK, um, London Citizens and here Sydney Alliance that have demonstrated that um, really powerful things can be done when you bring unexpected actors together. Um, And I think that Labor can approach doing things like this by being willing to um, be present in communities where there are sometimes challenging other forms of authority, (laughs) where there's even sacred authority, Um, being curious about people's faith um, and doing so in a way that seeks to understand um, difference and bringing uh, a level of kind of ease to dealing with difference, that it's okay to have incredibly unexpected actors in one room working on things together um, and to be, uh, you know, to be a party that brings a sense of imagination of what can be done when you do that. We've seen examples of it working on issues like the living wage in the UK and we've seen great examples here in Australia, but um Labor has a great opportunity if it can not only be the party for all Australians but, you know, work with social infrastructure that enables all Australians, quite diverse actors, including faith communities, to get together around some of these big social challenges and to be okay that sometimes that process might be a bit messy. Um, But if it is really grounded in community, it can be incredibly generative. Do you think that uh, there is... A 
going deeper into this sort of does labor have a problem with religion sometimes in some social circles and work circles i've experienced and i really don't want to sound like i'm playing the victim here because i'm not but i've just noticed um you know pejorative conversations about people of faith and in my own mind i've sort of gone hmm, that's a bit bigoted and i've never called them out i've just got kind of kept to myself um do you think there's an element of bigotry within parts of the party when we think about faith-based people and the organizations when thinking through issues like this and I, I think it's a really thoughtful comment of yours Stephen just to say you don't want to play the victim here but when thinking through things like this I think there's been a greater teacher for me on this than someone like Tim Costello who when I've shared stories like this in the past is quick to remind me of well people have also experienced great hurt often from religion or feel really um dissociated um, and in many cases lack the kind of understanding of what it means to start from a position of who we are as people um, and have experienced life where they're told they have to be quite functionary. So it's incredibly um, disorienting for them to have a conversation about religion. So I, I think that that's where I'd place my focus is just that there's a lot of relationship building still to be done and I think as a Christian I want to be able to approach it in a way and it's very hard to do of um of of coming from a posture of wanting to serve in those types of conversations and communities because of the hurt that people have likely experienced to date um and being okay i think you know jesus definitely experienced a lot of bigotry himself and so in some ways that stuff isn't new um and that we can serve as even uh, you know a minority in society that having the cultural ascendancy on this stuff is not a requirement. In fact, um, it's probably a detriment to us. So getting used to serving where there's not going to be understanding, there's not going to be knowledge, there's going to be fractured relationships is something that I think Christians could can do well to get used to. The uh, You mentioned authority before um, and the Labor Party um, – loves to devolve uh, power to other groups and uh, just open the doors and be far mm. more open and transparent and democratic. And I'm being very, very, very sarcastic there when I say that. Um, <laughs> does the Labor Party have a problem with authority and devolving authority to, to, to others? And what, what, what are we, uh, what can we, uh, what can we learn from uh, other organizations that have been far more successful uh, at mm. that? So we talked about how we'd wanted to have this conversation for a while and I think this last couple of years have been significant in this regard for how we think about the Labor Party and authority. Think back to 2019 when we saw each other at the Chifley Conference and Adrian Papst had just come out from the UK and written a book on the relationship between Labor and faith communities. And I think it took an outsider to pick up on this thread to really diagnose what's going on that Labor has a problem with authority and um, no, nowhere more so than when that authority is sacred authority. And I think it took a Brit to, um, to see that in us, um, that level of discomfort. The Labor is pretty good with hierarchical authority, parliamentary authority, even some kind of um, some things that hang from that. But what we're uncomfortable with, particularly in Australian Labor, is um, authority that sits outside what can be controlled and that's really at odds with our history i mean with a with a union movement 
with an appreciation for association, <clears throat> this is, you know, a break in our, in our history. And so it took Adrian to pick up on that. Um, I think it's never been more important for the late, for the party to confront that though, um, with this wonderful, so long awaited um, commitment to the voice to parliament, it's going to challenge the party's thinking about authority and, um, and Australia, the Australian publics as well. And the more that the party can do to fill in that story and make it an expansive, confident story about the party wanting to devolve power to communities, um, the better. And so it's so important for enshrining a voice to parliament and it's important for communities broadly, in, including faith communities, for Labor to be able to tell that story um, and ensure that everybody can see their place within it. And just to add to that, I mean, certainly the experience here in Victoria, um, I do work with the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria, which is negotiating a treaty with the Victorian state government. Mm. Some of the steps that the Victorian Labor government have had to do to m meet with uh, the aspirations and the demands of the democratically elected uh, First Peoples Assembly, in which they've said, if we're going to negotiate treaty, then we need an independent umpire that has to be an Aboriginal independent umpire. It can't be someone from government, you know, and to actually then devolve that power to uh, the Aboriginal community is a huge thing. Um, and there's another, I mean, I know we spent the last 20 minutes shit on the Labor Party, but so <laughs> I also do want to point out, yes, there are examples where we can learn um, and actually um, give that authority to, to others. So there are great examples and we need to build on that um, as well. Um, before we switch over to then the the the, the um, oh actually one more question before we well, one more question I have for you on, uh, before we switch over to does the church have a problem with politics is um, we talk about we've talked about how people make assumptions um, the wrong assumptions about people of faith but also is there the reverse problem where sometimes we just take these votes for granted which what I call the demographer's assumption where they just sort of you know go ah oh, they're migrant and Catholic and in the western suburbs therefore they vote Labor. Um, and that's, mm. you know, we'll just leave them there and that's great, you know, whereas, well, yeah, sure, they might vote Labor now, but, you know, maybe something's happened and now their attitudes have changed somewhat. Are we taking that sort of faith-based tradition group for granted in, in terms of who we think is within our base and not actually doing enough to actually sort of meet with them and find out exactly what are their hopes and dreams, what are their challenges, what are their, you know, what are their, what are their interests, what are their values? Yeah, um, I think there's a lot in that in the sense that we're not thinking through enough the trajectory or the journey that voters might go on. So Andrew West did a great um, job analysing some of the demographics in uh, just after the 2019 election and, and drawing out this story that, you know, the greatest predictor that someone would vote Labor was um, how recently they'd come to Australia and the greatest predictor of someone's faith is how recently they came to Australia. So just showing... There's just such a close connection there. Um, yet what we saw in the 2022 election was just the significant swing towards the teals and in terms of demographics, that was often um, with with immigrant families, two people um, earning quite good income, um, often with two children who went to independent schools where they had a tradition, um, cultural tradition tied to Buddhism or Hinduism. And so quite different, therefore, from the agnostic base of the Greens, which, you know, demographically speaking, you could you could talk about. So um, we shouldn't make assumptions about 
you know, someone who is going to be a voter for Labor now, continuing on with us. Um, one of the things that was written about it, about the swing to the the independence was their ability to to actually grapple with the the hyper local issues and um, the problems in a federal system with the two parties often deciding mutually that they're not going to touch <laughs> those hard local issues. Um, you can see how those two different trends could well come together in the future if there are independents willing to grapple with the hard local issues, um, representative um, in, a, in a more direct way of cultural and religious diversity, uh, people who have shifted and feel like their aspirations are not being appreciated, um, then you could see that uh, that doesn't bode well for Labor. Um, so I think it's really important to start thinking through some kind of future planning scenarios of what that could look like and how do we engage now in a meaningful way with people who who um, their religion is important to their culture and um, Labor's in a great position to do that, taking multiculturalism seriously. Um, we now need to take people's religion and their um, cultural connection seriously as well. Um, here, here, can we just back that up a bit? That the, the, the analysis of teal voters, mm. that I, I've not heard this before. This is fascinating to me. That they, that their, their religious background was Hindu or uh, Buddhism. What in some of the in some of the seats, um, and so I remember reading this in the Fin Review shortly after um, that uh, some of the some of the base of the independents were the kind of two the 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 parents with two children <coughs> who had um, pretty good incomes who had a cultural connection to Hinduism or Buddhism. Um, and their children most likely went to independent fee-paying schools. That's interesting. I mean, yes. So not going to not going to hold in Wentworth, <laughs> um, but I take it you know in some of the other seats that this was a surprising find. Yeah, I mean, yes, I found it surprising. Oh, absolutely. I mean, independent schools tick got that. Uh, mm. You know, you know uh, double income, uh, two kids tick got that. Um, Margaret back and maybe second generation, I can understand that as well, tick. But then the just the, the, the uh, Hindu or uh, Buddhism one uh, has thrown me. That's a surprise. Interesting. Have to dive into that a bit more. Okay, let's flip the switch and have a look at the other side. Um, does Starting with does the church have a problem with politics and what are the central problems that we see with this relationship? Mm. So it, it was really through my experience of leading an Anglican women's foundation over five years and um, building up our public engagement work you know for a new season in the way that the deaconesses who are the founders of this organization had done in their own time in the 1890s and and other times that caused me to look into some of this stuff so you know the deaconesses worked on factory floors they helped newly arrived um, you know immigrants to Australia they did some extraordinary things and so as I said about looking at well what could we do and support, uh, you know, in this century, I was really struck by the way in which um, public engagement had shifted for the church. And then my personal experiences, like we spoke about at the beginning of assumptions being made about, you know, who I might have worked for in Canberra and those kinds of things forced me to kind of reckon with this. And it was really in that process that started to think about what's distinctive about um, <clears throat> the, the church or faith communities kind of religion problem in Australia. And so I think focusing first on um, some of the Christian denominations that uh, there is 
always an element in Australia of us having kind of a frontier religiosity and we've had a problematic relationship with politics but there is something that um, is specific to us that goes deeper about um, kind of an underdeveloped sense of how we engage in public life and so um, you know for example there's there's only a very scant tradition of public theology in the Christian faith in Australia. Part of that goes to structural reasons that you know, the statutes that set up universities in Australia meant that there were never university departments of divinity or theology. And so you've had the development of the theological colleges that train those going to ministry separated out from the public universities. And that's different from the UK or the US. Um, and so those who think about the relationship between um, you know, church and state um, faith in public life um, don't have the institutional support that they have in other places around the world. And so that ecosystem kind of has a bit of a, a gap in it. Um, there aren't people thinking, uh, floating balloons on these things, <laughs> supporting practical action. Um, but, you know, there's also been more recent developments. So, um I think with the you know within uh, particular don- denominations, there's been specific uh, events or uh, trends that have meant that a conception of how that denomination engages publicly has been kind of compressed. So to speak to my own denomination, Anglican Church, um, there's been a sense that uh, what it entails to be Christian doesn't place um, a lot of value on engagement in public life or political life. So kind of with the ascendancy of, I guess, what you could describe as a new Calvinism, um, there's there's not as deep an appreciation for the role of, um, you know, political participation um, and there's been a disconnection between kind of how people um, use their gifts with how you might serve in the common good. So it's been a kind of um, neglect of what it means for us to define and contribute to the common good. Um, and all in all, you could sum this up, I think, in terms of a moment where uh, the church in many different denominations has reacted against um, some of the kind of political uh developments by taking on this kind of exilic mindset, taking on the role of a victim that's just simply not open to us Mm. and vacating the space, um, choosing to be quite reactionary, um, failing to connect with political leaders and parties um, and pulling up the drawbridge effectively in local communities, focusing on the church as pretty narrowly construed. Why are they, why, where does this come from? Why are they pulling up that drawbridge, do you think? Hmm. Well, I think, I mean, there was a book written in the US context called The Benedict Option by Rod Dreyer, which was really putting out this kind of exilic solution, really saying, you know, it's time to build another arc and get into it. I think part of it is a reaction against um, what is perceived as a loss of ascendancy in public life. So there is a um, and there are all sorts of interesting demographic shifts on this, but um, in in developed countries, Christians as a proportion of the population are 
reduce, uh, you know, the proportion is decreasing. And so there's a real fear that that, um, that goes kind of to an existential fear that we're losing um, cultural ascendancy. And so that, that fear and um, kind of reactions against developments in things like identity politics with the backdrop of um, quite thin public theology of how to make sense of that has meant that um, there have been there have been kind of thought leaders and uh, religious leaders who have advocated for this kind of you know uh, save ourselves and commentate from the sidelines type of approach. When thinking about these quick the questions for this podcast, I recalled in year twelve for one of my VCE cats. Uh, or HSC for people outside Victoria, um, uh, my issue in English, my issue response thing, whatever the hell it was, was um, on the role of, of church and state. And at the time, it's in 1992, 93, Jeff Kennett is the Premier of Victoria. And the, you know, he was just a wrecking ball through the public service and, and you know, privatising everything under the sun and, you know, teachers and nurses and, um, um, you know, coal workers all losing their jobs. And so the churches or faith-based organisations really kind of pushed back at that moment from a welfare state perspective saying, you know, you, you've what you're doing here, you're really having an impact on the community. And kind of pushed back on them and said, well, I don't give a stuff um, and you should just stick to preaching about your God and stay inside your temple uh, and I don't want to hear you guys p- piping up and, you know, in the public domain and, you know, speaking on behalf of whatever and criticising my government basically. Um, I think I got an A. It was an amazing piece of work. Um, <laughs> it sounds it. Oh, it was incredible. Um, and, uh, and just think about how the resources to write that in those days. I mean, didn't have the internet. I just couldn't Google it. I had to actually go read books and, you know, you know. Um, do you think that uh, the, the, the church or, or faith-based organisations have kind of been battered by politics in some way whenever they have sort of lowered the drawbridge if we can continue with this um, <laughs> metaphor. Um, so when they have crossed over uh, into uh, the political sphere that they've either not been listened to or they've, the experiences haven't been that great and they're like, you know, what, what's the point? Why do we bother? Well, there definitely are experiences like that and, you know, real moments where it seems to be the disconnect is so great, you know, when you can't, uh, can't hire a Christian teacher in a Christian school. You know, I think there's there's those kinds of examples where the divide is, has become significant. I'm sure that many church leaders could point to those examples, but that's kind of just, you know, that's a bit lazy, isn't it, really? Yeah. Um, that's It's insufficient to, to, to stay in that position that, you know, um, there are so many great examples of how Christian communities have stepped up to these new challenges of engaging in a positive way um, and explaining, you know, um, what it means to have sacred authority and um, the distinctive and unique contribution of a of faith community in public life. And so <clears throat> I think that's really the next step is to learn from those examples where there has to be quite pragmatic in, you know, translating the value of, um, social cohesion that a church community provides and provision of social services and quantifying that um, yeah. for political leaders or, um, you know, bringing church leaders to Canberra, you know, 
all exercises I've seen happen really well and had a privilege to take part in, um, that that's really where the engagement needs to start going, um, to inviting political leaders into churches as, you know, significant publicly oriented institutions. And we see that in town halls during election debates. But um, it you simply can't stop on the hurts. You've got to move past them. If I was um, a political leader um, here to represent the people of Victoria or Australia or wherever it may be, and um, I was approached by uh, someone of faith, a leader within the church or, or whatever faith tradition it is, um, and they were pitching to me on something that didn't really align with my party's values, regardless of whether they align with mine or not, doesn't really matter, it's the party's values. Um there are some times where I think that the leadership of the church are disconnected from their own flock and they might be presenting an issue, presenting a, a, an argument on a particular issue. Maybe it, let's give the example of say um, women's health um, and, and uh, abortion, maybe some legislations coming up. Uh, there are th- instances where I would feel comfortable saying back to the, 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 an archbishop or whoever going, mate, I don't actually, you may think that's what you think, but I would proffer to you that your faith, your, your flock, don't agree with you and you're just running an argument based on, you know, the hierarchy of your church as opposed to actually what your community want. Now he has every, he, and it would be a, he has every right to say back to me, well, I'll be the one who will determine what my flock thinks or not, but then I'd put back to him and say, well, I just don't think you actually carry the weight of your community when you walk into this room with this, with make, to make that argument. Is there a disconnect do you think between the leadership of the, of the, of, of these faith-based organizations and their own constituency? which undermines the work that they're trying to do? I love the question because I think this gets to the heart of perhaps the misunderstandings about authority, right? So um, there is something that's specific about church authority, which means that there may well be a disconnect between the shepherd and the flock on an issue like that. Um, but that's kind of not relevant in some ways from the church leader's perspective, that they're trying to you know, teach and, and do the formation work of those in their church and it's their role to advocate in public life on that issue the role of the politician is probably to ask the question that you've posed of does does this church position on this issue um represent you know does it tell me something of what uh that flock thinks and if not then i need to understand my constituency um respectful of the church authority but thinking through the people I represent and what their actual positions are. Um, So I think it's the kind of cultural uh, fluency that's needed is the ability to hold those two things at once because I think from the church's perspective, if if there isn't a sense of um, authority in the way that we've just been wrestling with, you end up getting, you know, things like uh, platform speakers where they they put themselves forward as church leaders but with actually no... um, no church accountability or responsibility and that unfortunately can become a a very dangerous uh, way of operating and so um, it's often sadly taken on by women because they're not welcomed into leadership positions in the church Uh, but it's grappling with these nuances that's key and being able to as you said ask the question and um, you know it might be a bit of an uncomfortable conversation but it's an important one for political leaders to have. Do you think I masked my own uh, projections of the disappointment I have in my own church leaders in that question? I don't know if I did a good job of that or not anyway. Um, Can we talk about the Pentecostal church for one moment? Um, 
certainly, you know, the, our pr- previous um, prime minister was a member of uh, uh, that 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 new age Christian faith based tradition. Um, and um, there's sort of a, I mean, there's been not a lot of reporting, but a bit of reporting on on the relationship that existed there between um, the PM's office and the leadership within the uh, within the Pentecostal Church. Um, and I'm really conscious of not trying to sound like a sort of a you know mainstream Catholic sort of bigot picking on the Pentecostal Church and whatnot. But uh, to me, it looks that the relationship between um, some of the Liberal Party and and that faith tradition feels very, very transactional, um, and I uh, that that concerns me. I think that that um, you know all of what we've talked about today. I think where we want to lead towards is that a relationship between faith based organisations and politics needs to be transformational, not transactional. And I just worry absolutely. Yeah, and I just worry yeah. that when I look at that, it is tr- very transactional. I know that um, people with um, stronger minds than mine would say, well, actually, the, the Pentecostal Church is basically based on transactional religion. But anyway, leaving that to one side, um, what is, what what what's your take on 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 what you saw during that era of the Morrison government and what we saw from the Pentecostal uh, churches? Mm. I think people have, you know, have done well in analysing some of these dynamics but zooming right out and some of the personalities, but zooming right out, I think the issue is the one that you've named there of um, it's not good for anyone to have a transactional relationship and I think one of the, the trends that you can see here in Australia and in other places around the world is the commodification of a particular religious affiliation or a denomination as a whole for political purposes and commodification looks like those types of transactional relationships um you know doing deals on things and positioning of each other and sometimes co-opting a whole identity as well um and that you know that that's something that um needs to be avoided and as you've really powerfully pointed to the alternative is for there to be a transformational relationship between the two. And I, I think some of the, the very negative experiences that we've had in Australia recently um, point to the significance of finding those sorts of transformational opportunities going into the future. Um, we are a solutions-oriented podcast. We don't just want to have a uh, chat that goes for 45 minutes to get shit off the liver. Um, so I want to uh, talk about where do we go from here? What are some of the solutions that both parties can do to start to improve that relationship and actually make some um, proper inroads into, um, I think, look, from a purely labour perspective, making you know our, our community a far better place to live, really? Mm. I think the big thing that comes to mind, it sounds abstract, but it's actually incredibly practical, is about getting on with the work of defining the common good and how the party is going to contribute to that. So that connects with our conversations previously about um, being comfortable with different forms of authority, getting ready to bring meaning to um, devolving power to communities and particularly with uh, the commitment to a voice to parliament. Um so actually grappling with what we mean by a politics of the common good, what it means to be a party for all Australians, um, because that will very importantly open up vistas of, um, you know, future terms of a Labor government. Now's the time to do it. Um, I think, you know, Jonathan West and Tom Bentley have written really powerfully about the kind of... Um, waning value in the consensus created in earlier eras that there's not much left to go the kind of the engines running dry 
So if Labor wants to build out this distinctive way of doing a new form of politics, then it do really well in defining the common good. I think the second thing is um, to use some of these community organising methods that have been so well demonstrated um, to be a party of people um, and show what it looks like to bring together incredibly diverse actors, including people with a diverse faith. Um, if we want to have a reconciled nation with, um, you know, and a country that embraces its diversity, then we need to find those practical ways of doing it, um, helping people to be comfortable with difference, present, and to focus on kind of imaginative future ways of doing things. I think so that would be the second is demonstrating it through community organising. And the third would be uh, for political, for, for church uh, and other faith leaders to pick up on these signals and to start investing in public engagement by their uh, own communities. So showing that um, their church, for example, um, their synagogue, their mosque is part of a uh, social infrastructure in community and um, to do the translation work sometimes it's needed with a kind of position of or a kind of humble approach to bring it within the frame of relevance to government. So you know, whether that's making visible the number of hours that are provided by volunteers within churches in a particular denomination or whatever that is, but starting to speak the language of those in um, political life I think could go a long way to bridging what's been a divide. Here, here. Kate Brennan, I am so glad we had this conversation. Um, and I, there's a whole heap of other questions I do want to ask you, but we're going to have to leave it there because I know you've got to run to a meeting and, um, and this could go on forever. But first of all, thank you very much for coming on the show. I'm glad we got to do this eventually. Uh, please come back on again in the future um, and good luck with uh, your role at, uh, at Sydney Uni. Um, is, is there anything you want to plug or if anyone wants to reach out to you, how's the best way to get into, are you on social media? What's the best way for people to contact you? Thanks so much, Stephen. We're on Twitter at, at the Sydney Policy Lab and um, love to hear your thoughts on the way that we can connect with diverse communities. So reach us there. Fantastic. Thanks, Kate. Hey there. Thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunn Street on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn Lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on.